0: This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. When I came to the East Mountains just under five years ago, it was pretty apparent to me um, that the churches in the East Mountains are very, or can be, very territorial. And um, it has been a joy to my heart to get to know um, Grant and uh, you and um, uh, it's, it's just been really good to see the body of Christ come together and um, worship together and so we're excited for uh, this Friday to host um, the Good Friday service and uh, just looking forward to you being there and um, would you stand one final time before our sermon and turn in your Bible to Psalm 17 <clears throat> Psalm 17, if you need help getting there, you're not sure, don't be afraid to use the table of contents. If you're a guest or um, new to Cedar Springs, don't be afraid to ask someone next to you as well. Psalm 17, I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety and then I'll pray and then we'll be seated and get to work. This is the word of the Lord, a prayer of David. David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart and you have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have, pur- I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have surrounded, they have now surrounded our steps. They set our eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men by the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Father God, we come before you this morning and we are hungry walking around this past week in a parched land surrounded by parched lives God, we are hungry. And this morning as we come, Lord, what we need to hear is not a word from me. What we need to hear is the voice of God. And So God, I pray that you would satisfy us with your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross so that we might make much of your Son Christ, and rejoice greatly because we see the goodness of our God. Father, we pray these things in your precious and most holy Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Verizon had a very successful ad campaign for a number of years that centered around a repeated question. The question on the commercials was asked in different places. It was asked on a beach. It was asked in a swamp, in a cornfield. The the spokesman even popped out of a sewer and asked the question, do you remember the question? Can you hear me now? More than answering the problem of having a bad network, this campaign elicits in the consumer uh, the desire to be heard. We all want to know, can you hear me? And the implication of the commercial is to instruct the consumer what they need in order to be heard. Psalm 17 is very much like Verizon. Verizon. It instructs us on what we know, or it it instructs us on what we need to be heard. Instead of just a phone call, though, it's dealing with deeper matters of the soul. How do I know that God hears me when I pray? However, the answer to the focus, the answer to the question is not focused on us, but rather focused on the character of God. Uh, oftentimes we come to the Psalms. I don't know about you per se, but I know that it is very common to come to the Psalms and just be comforted and, and to, to, to read a prayer or sing a song. And, and what we need to remember is that the Psalms are instructive and they are corrective as well. The Psalms instruct us in in three very simple ways. By way of introduction, consider the, the Psalter instructs us in how we are to think about God. Instead of continuing in error, it corrects our understanding of the character of God. It helps us know the the relationship of God to our daily life. However, the second thing that we need to see that the psalm instructs us in is the fact that uh, these instructions on how to think about God come to us in the form of poetry. Come to us in the form of symbols and images that that arise in us, our emotions. Emotions. And so the psalms help us answer the question, not just how should I think about God, but how should I feel about God? What do I do with my sorrows and my fears and my griefs and my doubts and my hopes and my cares my joys What do I do with the perplexities of life? What do I do with my victories in life? And so it should come with no surprise that in light of the instruction on how to think about God and how to feel about God, the Psalms help us understand how we are to communicate to that God. How do I talk to a God that at times angers me? bothers me comforts me brings me joy how do I wrestle with those things how do I pray and how do I sing and how do I give him my emotions the Psalms are prayers and songs that instruct us in how to communicate with God At at our church, I sometimes refer to the Psalms as a lyrical and prayerful anatomy of the soul in response to the greatness of God. And as we approach Psalm 17, uh, and as we approach Resurrection Sunday, and consider how God heard the prayers of His Son, It forces us to ask the question and and to learn this, that there is a God who hears us. But it gives us also an example of how to come to that God, how to pray to Him. And so it serves us by bringing comfort and confidence, as well as by giving us a model of what it looks like to pray. God hears the prayers of the righteous. That is Psalm 17 in a nutshell. God hears the prayers of the righteous. Psalm 17 is a prayer of David, and it's built upon three requests. If you're a note taker, this might help you. It's built upon these three requests. God see me, shield me, and save me. See me, shield me, save me. Let's look at this first request. It's a request, uh, more than just a request to see me, it's a request for vindication. Have you ever walked into a room, and there's, there's maybe two or three people in that room already, and, and uh, guys, it, it sometimes happens, you know, with, with your wife being already in the room, and, and you walk in, and, and they ask you this question, well, what do you think? And you're like, uh, uh, whatever she said, right? And you point to your wife. You're like, I don't know. Is there a is there a wrong answer here? Probably, right? And and we don't initially find out the situation of Psalm 17. We're literally brought into the middle of this conversation, of this debate. Even more than a debate, I'm going to read the first two verses, and I want you to see the courtroom terminology. You're literally walking into a court case. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. If you missed them, there's words like a just cause or a righteous cause. Uh, Vindication. Or even that last word in verse two, behold the right. David is asking God to make a decision, and whether it's the um, whether it's the court of public opinion or quite literally the court of law, David has a dispute, and he comes to God and he says, "I need an answer." However, what we need to see is that more than going to god david is doing so because of the character of god david says this let your eyes behold the right in the words of psalm 11 if you probably turn back over one page in the words of psalm 11 David is turning to the Lord, verse 4, who is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. David is asking God for for justice because he recognizes that God sees. And so he says, look down and see justice. See righteousness. And yet what we see in our world is exactly what we see in Psalm 10, verse 11. When describing the wicked, it says, "He has said in his heart, "God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He has hidden his face. He will never see it." Quite simply. This is the reality. We see people do whatever they want to do because when you believe that God can't see you, it doesn't matter. I'd like to this morning take a quick trip down this road because I want to contrast the mindset here that the wicked has, that there is no God and what's at the root of it. Versus what David comes to later. And so uh, permit me for a, a minute to talk a little bit about philosophy. Uh, while this way of thinking, this, this wicked way of thinking in verse 11 of chapter 10, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. God doesn't see. Uh, it says in chapter or Psalm 14, the, the wicked says in his heart, there is no God. God can't see what's going on. This is not some new Philosophy, this is not some new mindset, some new way of thinking. Clearly, it was around in the Old Testament in ancient times, right? But it has been expressed and explained in more recent years by a German philosopher known as Friedrich Nietzsche. He wrote his famous words, God is dead, in 1882. While Nietzsche was an atheist... He wasn't trying to imply in his writings, if you care to go back and look at them, he wasn't trying to imply that somehow mankind had actually killed God, but rather what he was trying to argue is that, man, that the Enlightenment had made man realize that they didn't need God. And so God could be removed from culture. Now what's interesting is, only a few years later... Nietzsche recognized there was a danger in this mentality. Uh, In his next book that he wrote, it was called, interesting name by the way, Twilight of the Idols, uh, the the death of of the idols. He would have seen the the Christian God as being an idol, but he says this, when one gives up the Christian faith, listen, listen to his words, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. This morality is by no means self-evident. Christianity is a system, a whole view of things thought out together. By breaking one main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. In other words, Nietzsche's arguing that morality that comes with uh, recognition of Yahweh, recognition of God as uh, the ultimate sovereign, is intertwined with him. If you remove God, you remove the morality that comes with it. During During the first half of the 20th century, this perspective of God's death planted seeds that produced two religions, or two mindsets, two perspectives, two worldviews on the world. And they sprang up during the first half of the 20th century, but they are on full display today. The first one is a fancy word. It's called nihilism. If you're not familiar with what nihilism is, nihilism is the worldview where traditional values and beliefs are unfounded. Human existence is senseless and useless because nihilism denies any objective ground of truth and especially of moral values. There is no meaning to life and therefore nothing matters because everything is worthless. Everything is pointless. Do what you want. I I actually think this is the mindset that is being wrestled with in the book of Ecclesiastes. Nihilism is on the end of the spectrum, though. So many don't want to go, well, there's no God, so they get off the train one stop before the end of the rail. And it's called secular humanism. Secular humanism is a non-theistic, non-God religion that is antagonistic to traditional religion. And, and like nihilism, there is a belief that the universe exists for no purpose. Nihilism is... A, uh, uh, like nihilism, there is a belief that... Um, the universe exists for no purpose. According to secular, human, uh, secular humanism, we are the result of a blind and random process that does not necessitate any kind of meaning. Now, here's the difference between the two. They, they seem very like, but there is a slight difference, and, it, and it's, it's only by a matter of a few inches, maybe a few feet. In secular humanism, because you assign a meaning to your own existence... No one can really judge or condemn your actions or your choices because they are consistent with their purpose. So simplistically, nihilism says there is no God, so live how you want. Secular humanism says you are God, so live how you want. The end result is the same, but we get there by means of no God or you are God. Now, all of that, here's why it's important. In contrast, David seems to be surrounded by this enemy. Look at verse 9. My deadly enemies who surround me. Uh, They they surround him and and by, by this enemy that has either denied God or put himself in the place of God. And what does David do? Instead of taking matters into his own hands, instead of being the one to decide justice, he does something completely different. And, and, and listen, if if we're entirely honest with David's response, it looks like weakness. David doesn't do anything in his own power. He cries out to God. Hear a just cause. Give ear to my lips. Bring me vindication. I, I, God, I want to see justice. And, and interesting, notice the basis for David's request. Look at verses 3 through 5. And, and as I read it, I want you to notice the past tense Verbs. They're all past tense. So, so David is looking back in his life and he says, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress with regard to the works of man by the word of your lips. I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Instead of playing judge, David is putting his faith in God because he trusts God's justice. Because he knows what God sees. See, faith is not just simply, oh yeah, I I believe God is there. Faith allows us to do what God says is right in His Word, allows us to live rightly in our daily lives and trust that even when others think we're wrong, if we're following God's Word, He will bring justice. Yet how often when we're in times of despair, times of trial, do we get out of our lane and we move over into God's lane because He's just not working fast enough. Or worse, God, I just, I don't like your decision. Listen, I want to be very clear. I'm not arguing for pacifism. Yet, I think there are times that faithfully, and this might be something you wrestle with this week, faithfully following Jesus could be mistaken as pacifism. Because it requires us to trust that God is just and He's going to bring justice. The difference is that we're the difference is in what we're fighting for. What we should be fighting for is to do what's right in our own lives. Oh, that we would learn to trust and do what's right. So we too might Request God's justice. David continues his prayer in light of his covenantal relationship with God. And look at the request for shelter and see if you can notice the covenantal language. I call upon you, verse 6, For you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Here's where they're going to start showing up. Wondrously show your steadfast Love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Here they are again. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. David is saying, shield me. Put me under your refuge. And David's reference to God's steadfast love, his loving kindness, reveals the closeness of David's relationship with God. Uh, David is uh, uh, reminded of the words, and we should be too, of the words that Moses saw embodied on the mountain when, it, when he was told, The Lord, the Lord, uh, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in stead Fast love and faithfulness. This is the love that God had for His people, seen in when He took them on, uh, took them as His treasured possession after they came out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter nineteen, verse five, He calls them a treasured possession because of this. Marriage relationship, David seeks the care and protection that are baked into this steadfast love and I don 't want you to notice he, chooses, he uses two metaphors to refer to this special relationship the the the, the blessings that come because of this covenantal marriage in Verses eight In verse 8, but it appears, it comes, David is alluding to Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 to 12, in what's known as the Song of Moses. Listen to the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young spreading out its wings, catching them up, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. David's enemies have surrounded him. So he appeals to the God of the Exodus to act on behalf of his love. David is, is asking for protection from the enemy to be hidden in the shadow of the wing. The story is told of a firefighter who is walking, through a, walking along a path of the forest after a fire had been contained and he found the body of a bird. You may be familiar with this story, but it's the body of a dead bird and he wondered how this bird wasn't able to escape. Was he too slow? Was he injured? What was was going on with this bird? And, And as he went, he went to clear the bird off the path and out from underneath the bird came four little chicks. And the mother's body had covered the little birds from the searing flames. Consumed by the flames, her babies remained safe. This is literally the picture that David wants to invoke and that he is drawing upon. Like the little birds, David is surrounded by flames of the enemies and he says, God, protect me. His enemy is contrasted. Notice in verses 10 through 12. So in verses 3 through 5, we get a description of the righteous. In verses 10 through 12, we get a description of the wicked. And I want you to notice the same three factors with different results. In verse 10b, it says this, With their mouths they speak arrogantly. Now look back to verse 3 at the end when it says, I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress verse 4 with regard to the works of man by the word of my, of your lips i have avoided the ways of the violent he, he's saying there's a difference in how the righteous and the wicked talk there's also a difference in their way of life look at Verse 11, they have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast to us the ground. The idea here, when it talks about steps, it's not just literally, you know, someone took a step. It's, it's they have literally planned out this, this scheme. They've devised this plan in their life, and they're living by it. Look at verse 5. It says, my steps have held fast to your paths, My feet have not slipped. And then lastly, we see the third facet. So we see the facet of the tongue, the walk, and then we see the actions. Look at verse 12. He is like a lion, eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. And look at verse 4 when it says, I have avoided the ways of the violent the, the picture here of, of the wicked is, is that of a young and ferocious lion. How many of you ever heard a lion roar in person? Raise your hand. Anyone? You know, every time I go to the zoo, it's like the lion is either not there, he's asleep, or he's just like a mute. You know, he doesn't talk, Right? So, about the only like live-sounding lion I've heard is is the beginning of MGM movies when the lion roars. That sounds pretty ferocious, though, doesn't it? And, and this is the picture: is this, this this lion is waiting for the enemy to come closer and closer. Boom! He strikes. And he kills his prey. But I want you to see the key to understanding what David is talking about. It starts not with the mouth and not with the feet and not with the actions. Look in verse 3. For the righteous, it says, you have tried my heart you have visited me by night you have tested me and you will find nothing look at verse 10 speaking of the wicked they close their hearts to pity the description of the wicked more than just the idea of a closed door it's the idea of a callous heart. It's bloated with fat is the picture behind that word, uh, behind the word, uh, the, the, they close. It's a callous heart. It's, it's what Deuteronomy calls a rebellious heart, a heart that is closed off. It's the, it's the picture of a heart of stone. And David describes them as being puffed up with their wealth and pleasures. Look at verse 14. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. In this one verse, with what he says next, starting with you, Phil, I want you to notice he actually, I think David's actually kind of mocking the wicked. He's he's referring to their cycle of life. Look at what he says. You fill their womb, speaking to God, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. They they chase life in this world. They get rich. They have kids. And when they die, they leave their wealth to the kids. John Ortberg calls it, uh, in the title of his book, he says, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. And David is describing these, these men and these women, these people, the, 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 the wicked who, who, who they get it all from a worldly standpoint. But they still die. They scheme to make situations work out for themselves instead of the betterment of others because they're closed off. They have a heart of stone. And, and, and the picture is that of, of killing and destroying others. So listen, at the base level of David's description of the righteous and the wicked contrasts a heart of stone and a, a heart that is calloused and one that is open, one that is tender, one that is humble and submitting to the justice of God. We don't have to look very far to see this description in verses 10 to 12 of the wicked in our culture, do we? We don't have to look very far to see the the lurking lion. Maybe it's the strategy of individuals who simply seek to harm others through violence and justice. Or maybe it's the plans of the collective wicked. Like Disney. And their agenda to have more characters that identify as LGBTQQIP plus, 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 right? Listen, if it wasn't clear before, Disney has laid their cards on the table. Parents, what are you going to do? They are no longer family-friendly. And some of you are like, I don't know what's going on. What did they do? Check it out. Pay attention. Most news agencies don't care about truth because they're driven by ratings, right? Which means they're driven by money. So we all know they don't follow the truth. They follow a narrative. But we should expect that from the world, right? We should expect that from the wicked. We should expect that from the lion waiting for ambush. So more than that, more than up here this morning pointing fingers, more than that is this morning I want to ask you, what is our response? When you're surrounded by the enemy, when the politicians and the celebrities and the culture shakers and movers come around you and tell you, what are you going to do? I mean, We live in the East Mountains, right? So most of us are going to grab our gun. Come out swinging at least, right? Come on! Bobbing and weaving? Maybe you're going to reach for your wallet? The last two years have seen many move to Florida and Idaho or Texas. Listen, God might actually lead you to move somewhere like that, but don't confuse your initial instincts with God's calling in your life. Test that out. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your your, your your church family. What's the motive to move? See, the example that we have here from uh, one who was a man after God's own heart is to say, Yahweh, shield me. You cover me. Instead of calling 911 or 357-357, Or 30-aught. David says, God, help me. Shield me. Protect me. And, And in fact, this request is tied closely with the next request. In which David calls on God as a warrior. And he says, save me. It's, it's a request for relief. Notice the word in verse 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. David is looking at God and calling on him to fight against his enemies. And more than... More than David's like on the battlefield. He's like, all right, bring in the reinforcements. David hasn't even got on the battlefield. David is surrounded by the enemy. He's calling on God to fight for him. It's as if, if I can use a modern day picture, it's as if David turns to Yahweh as his bodyguard, as a master swordsman and a third degree Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, and says, make him tap out, God. Subdue him. Confront him kill him. And this depiction of God as a warrior, as a fighter, I want to just encourage you is probably one of the most challenging pictures that we can see throughout the Psalms. It pushes us against our primary depiction depiction of God as being one of Love. When we know God is just, but God is a warrior, like a fighter? The words of Davis force us to see that he's calling on a God who is a commanding general on a battlefield precisely because of his love. Not in contrast to it, but because he loves his righteous servant. He loves his anointed one. He will protect him. He will fight for him. You see, the promise God made for Israel as they were coming out of Egypt in the wilderness and going into the land of promise, he says, the Lord will fight for you, Exodus 14. You only need to be still. See, the prayer of save me, David adds to the words, to the prayer of shield me, David adds to the words, save me. And these three requests, see me, shield me, save me, produce in David a confidence to face a great enemy. Look in the final verse of the psalm. And as we turn there uh, to, to this final verse we, we must consider the similarities between the opening and closing of the psalm. David refers in verse 1 to a just cause. This is the same word that he speaks of regarding the face of God when he says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Because of the righteousness of God, it will take righteousness to see God. David asks Yahweh to see his righteousness, he asks Yahweh to see his righteousness so that he can see God's face in righteousness. David boasts, this is what, If we really want to wrestle with the psalm, this is what we need to wrestle with, is that David boasts how his lips are free of deceit, his mouth has not transgressed, he has not joined in violence, and his feet have not left the path. Really? Like, David, what biography of your life are you reading? David, did you know that someone was recording that phone call? Because if you're here and you're not familiar with why others are laughing, let me, let me tell you why this is a problem. It doesn't take long reading the story of David's life to know that he wasn't righteous. He committed adultery when he slept with another man's wife. And then he tried to deceive her husband by having his tracks covered when he brought Uriah back home and tried to convince him, Uh, by the way, Bathsheba was pregnant, if if you're not familiar with the story. And uh, so he tried to convince Uriah to come sleep with his wife so that he could, you know, convince Uriah that it was his. And when Uriah had more integrity than David, David sent him back to the battlefield carrying his own letter of execution. Which, were, which Uriah, being a man of integrity, didn't open. And he was killed in battle. And while Uriah was dead, in taking Bathsheba as his own, David committed theft. Sure, there were times in David's life when he was humble and righteous, but one of his final acts... At the end of 2 Samuel, reveals his pride. Yes, God told him to number the people, but his motives seemed to be different than God's. And the people ended up suffering a plague because of David's arrogance. And in his arrogance, David numbers the people and the land is judged for it. And so so as we come to Psalm 17, I'm going to just be very honest with you. This is one aspect of the Psalms that has always bothered me. How can David make these kind of statements? Who do you think you are, David? And the most common answer that you'll find in commentaries, in pastors, and Bible teachers, not all, but the most common answer is that, Well, David is speaking situationally. In whatever situation he was in when he wrote Psalm 17, David is just referring to that one moment. Listen, I'm not denying that that could be a possibility. But when you look at how many times David says this, it strikes me as conflicting. I'm not denying you saying that, but when you look at the textual evidence, both in this psalm and the psalms that surround it, the answer that, is, that, that it is regarding David situationally seems to be pretty hard to hold. See, yes, David was considered a man after God's own heart. He's referred to as a servant of God. But I think anyone who has a half understanding of their Bible knows that David cannot make these statements. These words do not apply to David. And if David can't make these statements, but he does, what makes us think that God will hear our righteous cry? Paul spends the first three chapters of the book of Romans laying the foundation that God is righteous and mankind is unrighteous. If all mankind is guilty, what makes us think we can have this kind of an audience with God? What gives us the ability to say, As for me, verse 15, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your Like What would give us that kind of confidence? Notice the word Awake. This isn't simply waking from a Sunday afternoon nap. The metaphor of death as sleep is common in scripture, especially in the Psalms. It's quite all over the Psalms, Psalm 65, Psalm 76, 5, sorry, Psalm 76, 5 says, The stout-hearted were ripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. It's a depiction of the death of Assyria in Psalm 76. Job even says this, he will lie asleep in the earth. So the king, David, is looking forward to see the face of God. How can he be so confident that God has heard him? Well, there's another king there's another David. And this king, he was righteous. In fact, 2 Corinthians tells us regarding this king, he knew no sin. In John 15, Jesus says that he kept the Father's commandments. He's he's imploring his disciples to to bear fruit and and to be obedient to the commandments. And he says, I have obeyed the commandments of my Father. Yet, Paul finishes in 2 Corinthians when he says, God made him to be sin for our sake, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took the punishment of the wicked described in psalm 17 jesus cried out to god my god my god why have you forsaken me in that moment he experienced listen in that moment jesus experienced the deafness of god so that we could experience the ear of God. More than that, though, look at what this psalm says. Psalm 1715, psalm, uh, it's more than just having an ear with God. It's that we would see God. Behold His face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied. You see, on one hand... Psalm 17 allows us to see the complex beauty that Jesus was a righteous king who took the punishment of the wicked and experienced the deafness of God so that we might experience the joys of life in the presence of God. Listen to what Paul says about it in Romans. Very common words, but I think that what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 8 is this reality therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of him of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order, listen, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8 shines a light, looks back and shines a light on Psalm 17. And yet, on the other hand, hours before the cross. Christ was in the garden and he prayed these words in John 17. Listen to the words that he's praying. He's praying for vindication. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God, I fulfilled what you called me to do. I lived your commandments. I was righteous. Would you vindicate me? This is quite literally what Jesus is praying. You see, Christ may have experienced the deafness of God on the cross, but Hebrews 10 reveals that God heard that prayer, the prayer in the garden. Hebrews 10 says this, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down he finished the job at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified and so here's what the writer of hebrews tells us a few chapters earlier listen to these glorious words since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence. Draw near to the throne of God that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, on one side of the coin, think about a coin, heads and tails, right? On one side of the coin, we can be confident that God will hear our prayers because Jesus experienced the deafness of God. And on the other side of the coin, tails. We can be confident that God will hear our prayers because as a righteous one, Christ intercedes on our behalf. See, we come to Yahweh in the righteousness of Jesus. So I want to do something. I want you to go back to Psalm 17. If you are turning with me, that's okay. Psalm 17. and I want to read this Psalm 17 again in its entirety. And I want to ask you to close your eyes and and here's what I want to ask you to do before I wrap things up and conclude. I, I want to just read this and I want you to hear in these words, not David speaking. I want you to think about Jesus saying these words. I don't know if it was part of What he said with John 17. Was it when he was on trial and and being surrounded by the Sanhedrin? But consider this as a prayer of Jesus. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart and you have visited me by night. You have tested me. You will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to hear me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Think of Jesus saying, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity, with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have surrounded our steps, they set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to treat, he is a young lion lurking in ambush. Oh, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. Jesus, with confidence on the front side of his death says this, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, when I rise, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Listen, brothers and sisters, God hears the prayer of the righteous. If you're here this morning and Maybe you're hearing, you need to consider that if if God hears the prayer of the righteous, what is your hope? I recognize, if you're not a normal attender here at Cedar Springs, I, I recognize this is not a popular truth in our day, but Psalm 17 reveals that while the righteous will be protected by the justice of God, the wicked will experience the justice of God. If you are here and you are not a believer, consider that Christ experienced our justice so that we might be protected by God's justice. Jesus took our penalty. He took your penalty so that you might be heard by God, so that you might see his face, experiencing the satisfaction found only in him. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, you're you're a brother and sister, let me just give you a couple quick things to think about. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to remember that you can't claim to be in Christ and live in wickedness. Maybe you see the 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 beauty of the wicked, maybe you see what they have, maybe you uh, look around and you say, man, I wish I had that and this and those things over there, and man, it looks like God's, God's not just. It looks like He's just letting them go. Uh, I guess I can live however I want. We must live out the righteousness that we have been given in Christ. Or maybe you're here this morning and you need to be reminded that just because you know Jesus and have experienced His righteousness, you know how it will all end you know he's on the throne. You know, you know, hey, I know, and so I've put my faith in him and so do I really need to pray? Do I really need to call on him if he's sovereign? Well, why why should I? David found solace, Jesus found solace in God the Father. How can we not follow in their example? If we're found in his righteousness, we must live out that righteousness. But maybe you're here this morning and increasingly more and more I find that people are just tired and you fall into a category of of people I call the weary and and you need to be reminded of this God hears the prayer of the righteous and when we are in Christ his ear hears our prayers And and, and so what we need is the words of Paul. A reminder after the resurrection and of the beauty of the resurrection. Paul says this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Listen. He holds us in his righteousness. And because of that, he has paid the penalty. He has given us justice. And that justice has been satisfied. Let's pray. And then we'll stand and sing that wonderful reminder for my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Father, we thank you for the example that we have in these words, Lord, and how the Psalms teach us. The Psalms reveal your character. They stir up our emotions because we, give, we gain confidence because in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, we are shown the substitutionary atonement of Jesus that the one who knew no sin became righteous, uh, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, may we walk out this week in confidence that you hear our prayer. We pray these things in your precious and most holy son's name. Amen.